This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. It was deja vu all over again. By 10.45 on Monday night, Canadians were told they had elected another liberal minority government. So will Prime Minister Justin Trudeau face any consequences for this exercise in futility? And what about Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole? The conventional wisdom has it he will not be able to keep his job after tacking to the centre on various issues. Was O'Toole hurt by the COVID emergency in Alberta and his refusal to criticize Premier Jason Kenney? Or was there vote bleeding to the People's Party of Canada? Despite social media stardom and a good campaign, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is basically back where he started. So is the Green Party, but with a crushing personal defeat for leader Annamie Paul in Toronto Centre. On the morning after the vote, Libby spoke with our Tuesday strategy panelists about the results. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. It would sound like nobody had a great night, and because we're back to where we were, but I, I differ. I, I think uh, Justin, Trude- uh, Justin Trudeau, he and his team, under, regardless of all the, the things that went against them with the early call, the Afghan, the feminism, the scandals, all this stuff that happened locally as well, he still won a minority. And it will stop posturing. It will stop some of the threats that the opposition were doing to try to bring it down. And, and it'll enable him to pass legislation more quickly. And so, yeah, it, it, it seems like it was a waste of time, but this is going to give him another two years of, of strength. And uh, and he's got a mandate to continue. Uh, John, do you agree? I, I don't. I I, uh, I love Charles and I re- I respect him uh, immensely. But I do think he's a little bit off on this one. I uh, I must say that that you know th- no one really won this election. Not least of which taxpayers who have been saddled with a six hundred million dollar tax bill uh, or, or bill that, that as a result of this, of this campaign. But, uh, but I do think though, and again, yes, he did win the election and he did win a minority government, but that was clearly what not his intent. His intent was to get a majority government because he said that parliament was broken. It was toxic. It didn't work. And, and he wanted to make sure that he had a clear mandate from Canadians to take them to the next level past this pandemic. That's what he was trying to say by way of the ballot question when he first launched this campaign some 37, 37 days ago. That clearly didn't happen. You know, and I've always said on this show too, Libby, that voters are always right, no matter what happens. And I think that Canadian voters were, were as frustrated as it is to me, but were smart because they were not happy with him. They obviously were not happy with, with Aaron O'Toole or with the Conservative campaign. And there was a lot of issues that, that happened throughout the campaign that, that caused Canadians to come back to exactly, almost, give or take a couple of seats, where they were 36, seven days ago. So I think a lot of folks didn't win on this. But 
I must say, though, you know, as an Aaron O'Toole supporter um, and this talk of him, you know, stepping down or, or leadership reviews, I think is absolute bunk. OK, uh, let's would be uh, foolish. Look- Let's let's uh, let's hear Karen's quick take before we get into the nitty gritty. Karen, yeah, I, I agree more with uh, John than I do with Charles. Sorry, Charles, <laughs> but um, I, I don't I don't think um, any of the parties are going to give uh, the liberal Trudeau and the liberals the the, um, the kind of consideration in a minority parliament that they had benefited from over the last twenty months. Uh, you know, I think that you know, even at the at the outset, the NDP said, "Listen, we're going to support the Liberals. There's no need for this election." And there was, you know, that belief that, that the NDP largely voted in lockstep with the Liberals, and they governed as if they had a majority, and they made some decisions, and they they behaved in a way that, even though they were a minority government, they behaved as if they had a majority, and they went to the polls expecting that they would deliver on that, and they didn't. And I think that this next round is going to be much more difficult for the Liberals because they don't have a mandate from the people. They don't have, they didn't run on a mandate. They, they, you know, they ran on a mandate to get a majority government and they didn't get it. And so I think that they're going to have to do some soul searching to figure out what are they actually, what does the next two years look like? And, uh, and how are they going to get the support of the NDP or the bloc or in some cases the conservatives? And, and we might be right back at an election in sooner than 18 months. I do hope that the Conservatives see the opportunities that they have to rebuild their brand and uh, that they don't go on this path of, you know, eating their own because it, it'll, it'll just end up, I think, very badly for the Conservatives. And, uh, but that they see this as a, as, a, as a way to rebuild and that they take advantage of it. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. In the fallout of the federal election, one of the three defeated cabinet ministers, all women, by the way, is Deb Schult, now the former minister for seniors. She was just the second minister for seniors named by the Liberals. So should we just assume Prime Minister Trudeau will name another? And is the role even effective? Long-term care and health are provincial responsibilities, but the carnage from COVID-19 has advocates, stakeholders, and family members clamoring for national standards. There is actually a process in place to achieve national standards. One of the panelists involved is Dr. Tamara Daly, a York University professor and the director of the university's Center for Aging Research and Education. She joined Libby on Wednesday along with Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly and NDP MPP and health critic Frost Jelena. Important seniors affair very, very seldom make it to the top of the priority pile. And, I mean, you've talked about what we've all witnessed during the pandemic uh, with the great majority of people dying were seniors. We are way off the charts compared to other developed countries in how poorly we did to protect our seniors, and many of them were in long-term care and in other congregate living. So for once, senior care made the top of the priority for every Ontarian. We all know we 
owe it to them to do better. And it also hit the top of the pile for the priority pile for, for the federal uh, and Canadian for a while. Uh, but it is hard to keep it there. Uh, seniors are easy to forget. They are easy to put behind. I don't want it to be forgotten, but I'm a bit worried. Yes. Dr. Daly, how do you see that? Uh, I would agree. I've always been worried about long-term care, to be honest. I think uh, long-term care in particular and seniors care more broadly um, seems to be stuck in, in what we might call a vicious policy cycle. And in part, that's because um, different levels of government have responsibility for it. It's also a highly um, commoditized space. So there's a lot of um, different players and different stakeholders that have uh, different levels of interest, including material interest or like um, large amounts of money that can be made. And uh, there's there's frequently a lack of attention uh, paid to this space because we are generally thinking about care for those toward the end of their lives. And it's something that um, Canadians have often thought that this is a personal or a private household responsibility, as opposed to seeing the ways in which we need to think about how we're all in this together um, and that we owe and uh, we owe something to each other uh, to care for each other at the end of our lives. So this kind of wicked policy space or this vicious circle that we've been in, um, it looked as though um, one of the only good things that may have come out of COVID was this increased public attention on long-term care um, and uh, care for seniors. And I'm just worried uh, that uh, as we solve some of the problems uh, of COVID in particular, that we'll forget about the problems that already existed uh, for seniors' care in this country. Jane Medes, now, do you have confidence that that when your work is done, it's it's not just going to end up gathering dusts like so many other reports that we love to do here in Canada? Sure, and and I agree that that you know often what happens is that these reports do end up on the shelf. The difference here is that these are going to be standards that will be, uh, or guidelines that could be developed by, into standards by Accreditation Canada. And, you know, many provinces already use those standards. So it's something that actually has a potential of being utilized because it is meant to be, um, you know, used as opposed to just a policy report. So it's different. Um, and again, it, you know, with the, you know, as mentioned, you know, we've got this sort of national, uh, provincial, municipal, you know, all sorts of different government levels. So it really is going to be, it remain to be seen, you know, who, who takes up these accreditation, you know, who will follow them, who won't. And that will be the big thing. But certainly there, you know, many provinces do use them already. And so we would be hopeful that that would continue. We still have to, to watch, um, you know, and I agree, unfortunately, in the past, we've had, you know, flare-ups of different issues in long-term care, and everyone says, oh, we're going to fix it, we're going to fix it. But as soon as it, you know, sort of, um, you know, they've said that, then it, it, nothing ever happens. So I think that it, it, it's got to be kept in the public eye, and, and people have to demand for their MPs that they're going to have to move this forward. Jane Medes, a staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Dr. Tamara Daly, a York University professor and the director of the university's Center for Aging Research and Education and NDP, MPP and health critic Franz Jelena. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break... How to Help Alberta in Their Fourth Wave COVID Crisis. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've known for a while now the situation in Alberta is dire and healthcare workers there need our help. Doctors in Alberta are bracing for the introduction of triage protocols where they would be forced to decide which critically ill patients would get the care they need. Earlier this month, Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott confirmed we will provide them with assistance. And after the Trudeau Liberals were re-elected, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair said Ottawa would also help out. There's talk of bringing patients from Alberta to Ontario's ICUs and sending some of our healthcare workers there. But is this something we should do? Can we afford to do it? Libby put these questions to a panel of experts, Dr. Al Golan, an intensive care doctor here in the GTA, and bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman at the University of Toronto. We definitely should send help to Alberta. This is no time to you know, be making judgments about who made good decisions and bad decisions. I mean, I think it's pretty clear, you know, what kind of decisions were made. But look, if we're going to, you know, we need to stand together. We need solidarity at a time like this. And the goal is to protect human life. I absolutely think it's the right thing to do without question. Dr. Golan, you are an intensive care doctor. You're on the front lines. I mean, I'm sure it's very easy for you to put yourself in that situation. I mean, how would you how would you feel about that? Well, I tend to agree, though. I think um, in our profession, we we treat first. Uh, we, we don't. It, it would be no different than if drunk driver got in a car accident and hurt themselves. We would still take care of them. I, I think people's decisions. We don't weigh them when we make medical decisions. And I think if we're called to help, we help. We we help first. We ask questions later and. As, as difficult it might, as it might be, uh, I, I think we we have to treat everybody the same way. We would have to treat them the same way as if we would in wave one or two or three. And I think uh, it, it is part of our job. I think you sign up for it and you don't have the, the comfort or the ability to judge. I think you treat. And, and then uh, some people are misinformed. Some people are, are scared. There's a variety of reasons why somebody may not be vaccinated, but I don't think it's for us to judge. I think it's for us to treat them. What do you think people would be going through? I mean, I think it's it's bad enough when they see unvaccinated people getting very sick here, but going to another place, I mean, what, how, what kind of a toll do you think that would take on the actual person giving the care? Well, it takes a tremendous toll. I, I can tell you working in the hospital, we uh, the vast majority, upward of 90% of the patients we're treating in intensive care units who have COVID are unvaccinated. Um, and I think even before you even take into account whether they're vaccinated or not, I think at this point, just like the general population, we're all exhausted. Um, whether, you know, it's, it's a special respiratory therapist, a physician, or the allied health, I think we're all, we're all, we're not burnt out, but we're quite tired. And I think we all want a bit of a break. So I think this is one of those situations where even if everybody was fully vaccinated and came in sick, we'd be equally tired. The only difference is now, uh, subconsciously or not subconsciously, it's it that much more tricky because this is preventable. And 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 a lot of people, you know, go to work and say, you know what, I'm I'm still going to do my job. I'm still going to do it the same way. But it's unfortunate because this is entirely a preventable wave. Um, 
and it does take a toll. It takes an emotional toll and a physical toll, but you know, that is part of the job. And we all signed up for it years ago. Uh, we may not have signed up for it to continue for this much time, but you never know. And in fact, in 10 years time or 20 years time, there might be another pandemic where we're asked to jump in and that's part of the job. You, you, have, you have to do what you have to do. Dr. Golan, how are you feeling about the way things are shaping up here as we head into colder season? As Unfortunately, as good as can be expected with the limitation that people are not vaccinating as well as much as they should. I, it, it, it is a bit beyond me how, you know, in the first three waves, I understand there's lack of knowledge and lack of information, this hesitation, and initially there's no vaccine. But at this point, it really is uh, completely preventable. I think if people vaccinate, this will all go away very quickly. And I, it surprises me that we, we don't do it. And I, I hope people can be better informed and, and make better decisions. But I think we're as well suited as possible, given the limitation that, you know, the, there's a significant amount of people who are not vaccinated and causing variant strains. And Dr. Kerry Bowman, last word to you. Yeah, no, I would agree. But Libby, I'm going to say something I've said so many times. The biggest threat to us all is the global situation. And in fairness, we're doing very little about that. And that needs our attention. That's the only way to get through this in the long run. Bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman at the University of Toronto and Dr. A.L. Golan, an intensive care doctor here in the GTA. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still with issues around the pandemic, it was late last week members of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration decided not to offer booster shots of COVID vaccine to the general public, instead limiting them to people 65 years of age and older and those who are immunocompromised. This is very different from the approach in Israel, which to a certain extent is serving as the world's clinical trial because they vaccinated their population so early. Now in Israel, they are in the midst of giving boosters to people in younger age groups since the over 60s have already received theirs. And as a result of research that shows Pfizer vaccine immunity wanes after six months. So what does this mean for us in Canada and Ontario? Libby asked this of Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health. I think the FDA made the right call. We're getting too jumpy about boosters based on too limited evidence. And the big picture is really quite clear. First, the vaccines, almost all of them, protect much better against severe infection and hospitalization than they do against any infection. And all of them work. That includes they, they work against severe disease caused by alpha or by delta. And that the effectiveness lasts for several months. So that's quite clear. And the key issue here is we have to reach the unvaccinated. Even in a high coverage setting like in Canada, most of the new infections and the risk of severe disease is occurring in the unvaccinated. That should be our only focus. Boosters are a bit of a distraction. Do you agree, Dr. Vaisman? 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Based on the hard data that we have, there isn't really good proof to say that an entire nation, including those who are younger, need to have a third dose. The cases that we're seeing among the vaccinated are not not among that group. Those who are not responding well, generally speaking to the vaccine, are those who are elderly or those who have no immune compromise status. So, as Dr. John mentioned, the, the sensible approach here in Canada is to focus on the third doses for the most vulnerable, but focusing on remaining on getting vaccines for the rest of the younger population to complete their vaccination rather than aiming for a third dose in those people. What they found in Israel, and they are ahead of us, right? Um, we haven't reached the five or the six month mark. Uh, they, they are blaming part of their huge spike in infections in the fourth wave on the waning of the vaccine, even though, to be fair, there are fewer serious cases and, and they have, you know, much, much, much less hospitalization than, uh, than we saw in earlier waves. So doesn't that sort of prove that, that the immunity does wane, even though it still protects against the most serious disease? Dr. Ja? The Israel data are uh, very much welcome, but you have to take it with a, a considerable grain of, uh, grain of salt. First of all, it's a very much a older age distribution with uh, you know, lots of people with uh, chronic disease. Their rollout of vaccines was very different than we had to do in Canada. And in fact, there's some evidence, but I wouldn't uh, bet the farm on it, that the Canadian spacing being further apart, which had was driven by necessity, might actually give you more sustained response. The hmm. reasons for why the Israel rebound aren't all clear. We think that the challenge of COVID is going to be a multi-year challenge. And uh, this is the other argument that we hear about uh, boosters, that it'll prevent variants. But that's like driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror. Most of the variants um, that are going to be potentially threatening the vaccines are yet to evolve. So the right strategy would be to get boosters developed for new variants, not for the stuff that already uh, we've been widely infected with. And that's exactly what we do with the flu shot. You know, we look forward to saying, well, how can we, uh, how can we protect against flu? So we need smart strategies and not to be jumpy based upon really quite a limited set of evidence from one country. That's just the wrong way to do science. Libby's conversation with Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. John in Peterborough phoned about electoral reform. Just another election, 
that people didn't get to vote in, their, their votes were wasted. This system has to go with a ridiculous, nonsensical system that only Canada and Britain use. When these young people turn to you and say, no, why should I vote? My vote doesn't count. They're right. James in Etobicoke called about when he thinks we will next go to the polls. It seems to me talk of an election in in 18 months is unrealistic. I believe the New Democrats won't want to be tagged with with causing an election. So probably it'll be a natural uniting of the left for the next three years. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Carolyn in Halliburton, who phoned with some optimism about her experience with the federal election. I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work um, uh, one of our local polls. I was so pleased and happy that there were so many young people that came out, many of them for the very first time. The registration desk was busy from dawn to dusk with new voters registering. Plus, I talked to a whole lot of people who had not voted in years and were coming back to make a statement. And then I look at the results, which say the PCs got the popular vote. And this is something that has always perplexed me. The popular vote does not dictate who the government is. So looking down the road a little bit, what does that really mean? All these people that voted for the first time came out after many years, and their vote, does it count? With our current system, where popular vote does not dictate the government, um, I question that a little. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer... Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.